We officially passed 200,000 deaths to COVID-19 yesterday, more than any other country in the world. The passing of the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg could put Obamacare in limbo again, throwing millions off their health care in the midst of a pandemic. Campuses across the country continue to be a hotspot for COVID-19 transmission. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El Sayed. Every day, I start my day by looking at Johns Hopkins COVID-19 morbidity and mortality statistics. Every day, the numbers grow. The ticker is like some morbid counting machine that keeps dialing up to some interminable infinity. I have to remind myself that these numbers aren't just numbers. They're not some meaningless stat. Each and every one of them is somebody. That somebody had people they loved. People who loved them. They smiled and laughed. Held hands cried tears, and had dreams. Each of them leaves people behind. 200,000 causes for thousands more holes left in the hearts of children and parents and lovers. The challenge is, though, is that the numbers have gotten so big that they obscure that human meaning. If only one man dies, it's a tragedy. If millions die, that's only statistics. Joseph Stalin, the communist dictator of the USSR, said that about a famine. And sadly, it's the brutal logic it seems Trump brings to this pandemic. As that brutal counter continues to wind forward, and we get more and more numb to the climbing toll of human death and destruction, the less they're forced to deal with the human consequences of their failure to act. And that's why we have to remember their humanity. We have to ask about their names and their families. We have to understand who they were and what they cared about. The other thing that happens with big numbers is that they tend to hide the tremendous differences in the burden of disease forced upon different communities. Black and brown Americans continue to suffer the consequences of COVID-19 far worse. Lost lives, lost livelihoods, lost family, lost friends. Black and Latinx Americans, for example, face two to two and a half times the likelihood of both contracting COVID-19 and dying of the disease. And the economic consequences have been borne hardest by low-income people who are both most likely to have to work through the pandemic and most likely to lose a job because of it. In fact, data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics shows that 54% of newly unemployed Americans were in the bottom 20% of earners. They were almost 10 times as likely to lose their jobs as those in the top 20% of earners. But the consequences of losing a job aren't just about wages. They're also about health care. As of July, 5.4 million Americans lost their health care coverage to the pandemic. And that could get a lot worse. Supreme Court Associate Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has died at the age of 87. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a giant for social justice, equity, and the rule of law in this country. She fundamentally changed the face of this country for women, LGBTQIA Americans, people of color, and so many others. What goes unsaid is how important she was to protecting our future, not just changing our history. And critically, she was a progressive stalwart on the court. Her passing on Friday night just 46 days before the election, coupled with Mitch McConnell's hypocrisy, could mean that tens of millions of Americans could lose their health care in the middle of the pandemic. First, a little bit about McConnell's hypocrisy. This was him in 2016, when he denied President Obama's nominee an up or down vote in the Senate. I think it is also safe to say the next president, whoever that may be, is going to be the person who chooses the next Supreme Court justice. From her deathbed, Justice Ginsburg said, My most fervent wish is that I will not be replaced until a new president is installed. But literally the night she passed, McConnell announced that he wanted to bring a Trump appointee up for a vote. 
already because of the immense pressure folks like you and I are putting on GOP senators up for re-election, two said they wouldn't vote to confirm a Trump appointee. We need two more. But either way, this weekend's events could change the face of American healthcare. On November 10th, just a week after the election, the court is set to hear arguments in California versus Texas, a case where Republican-appointed lower court judges already struck down Obamacare. If Donald Trump is allowed to fill the seat, it would certainly mean that the next justice would rule against Obamacare. Trump's shortlist includes people like Ted Cruz and Tom Cotton. But even if it goes unfilled, the ACA could still be struck down. The last time the law's constitutionality was up for review by the court, it won in a 5-4 decision, which included Chief Justice John Roberts, a conservative Republican appointee. If every justice ruled the exact same way, it would be a 4-4 decision, meaning the lower court ruling would stand. Though it would likely wind up in a series of new appeals, it doesn't bode well for the future. What's the upshot? Millions of Americans rely on the ACA for health care every single day. If it were struck down, those people would be robbed of their health care. As a former health commissioner in a city where 50% of our population were Medicaid eligible, I know that the cost of losing Obamacare won't be borne equitably either. It'll fall hardest on black and brown Americans too. And it speaks to the fact that the inequities in our country aren't only about one policy or another. They're systemic a function of the way we allocate basic resources in our country in the first place. After the break, we'll meet someone who leads an organization supporting thinkers, leaders, and organizers who are engaging in new ways to organize that system. Carmen Rojas is president and CEO of the Marguerite Casey Foundation, an organization driven to take on these disparities at their roots. We'll speak with her about COVID-19 disparities after the break. My guest is Carmen Rojas. She is the president and CEO of the Marguerite Casey Foundation. And uh, they've been doing some really important work thinking about uh, the differential experience of COVID-19 among black and brown folks in this country. Um, Carmen, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Abdul. I'm so excited to be here with you. So you focused on uh, racial disparities in COVID-19 across the country. And can you give us the top lines of, of what you found? Yeah, so if we take a step back to early in the pandemic, there was a pretty broad narrative that was making its way around our country that COVID was having this equalizing effect, right? Like if we remember the early stories that everybody was experiencing the pain, that everybody had the same level of exposure, that everybody had the same access to no care or lack of care. And I just knew it wasn't true. And there were three things that really struck me. Uh, one was the lack of data early on that most states actually weren't collecting or sharing data by race that would help people of color actually um, galvanize and organize a set of resources to respond to their specific needs because they were being disproportionately uh, impacted. They were on the front lines of work. They were on the front lines of care and they lacked um the social and health infrastructure necessary to address it. So for me, the first thing was like, how do we get this information out there? The second was like the ability to organize uh, and really wanting to support, organize um, organizations, leaders who were actually speaking to the ways that our political and corporate leaders were making a set of decisions that were killing us. 
I didn't want to like work around the edges and say, oh God, this COVID, like the, as if COVID were, were um, something that we, the impact of COVID was something that we had no choice over. And instead, I really wanted to support a set of leaders. And uh, at that point, it was really Rashad Robinson from Color of Change and Marisa Franco from Mi Gente, who were at the forefront at, of saying, you know what, people are act, people with power and resources specifically, are actively making choices to kill people in our community, and we need this to stop. So that was the second thing that we wanted to do. I think the third thing was actually rethinking our role as a philanthropy in the health space, right? Like there's a long history of foundations trying to intervene and undermine the ways that the government, that healthcare should be a public good, right? That like healthcare shouldn't be this thing that um, uh, is dependent on individual choice or is dependent on your relationship to an employer, but instead healthcare should be this thing that's universally accessible to every single person in this country. And so at the, at the onset of COVID, we as an institution started working really quickly to align those three things, getting information, supporting organizers, and shifting our conversation and perception around health. What I really love about this approach is that traditionally when uh, philanthropists get behind healthcare issues, they tend to focus on a singular biological pathology. They'll say, we're going to take on, you know, you name the disease. This will be the fund to cure epilepsy or the fund to cure ALS. And those are really, really important. But sometimes what's missed is a focus on the pathology that is not biological. It's the focus on the pathology that is uh, social. And, you know, in your thinking about uh, the social pathology that drives our disparities, what do you think are the big key issues that uh, folks who may not live these experiences have to be paying attention to, to be seeing uh, in the world as they move about that help to explain why black and brown Americans have suffered so much worse, not just with COVID-19, but almost every uh, preventable disease that that is out there? Yeah, you know, like at the, at the forefront, it's that um, black and brown communities, uh, and I'll be very specific, uh, black, native, and immigrant communities in the co- in the country have been at the forefront of the experiments to hollow out our social safety net. That in the moments where it felt like white people were going to benefit disproportionately and rich white people were going to benefit disproportionately, there was huge investment in both science, but also our social safety net and the things that the infrastructure that tethers us together into believing that we are a collective us. And as more Black folks, as more Native folks, as more immigrants and migrants um, started to become um, a part of the American, at the forefront of the American narrative, our political and corporate leaders made made a set of decisions to really hollow that out. Uh, And it has impacted all of us, right? The fact that uh, you need a job to see a doctor 
is idiotic. Like (laughs) everybody needs to see a doctor. Everybody gets sick. And somehow in this country, we have played the blame at the feet of the most vulnerable people in our society to make individual choices about their well-being that require access to medicine, that require access to care, that require access to a, a medical health professional, right? That like we have really um uh the story of us today sadly is a story of I have made a set of choices that have made it so I am sick, right? I eat a certain thing, I don't exercise enough, I smoke, I drink, instead of talking about the ways in which our society has made it really impossible. I don't blame uh poor folks, I don't blame uh uh folks of color for uh, struggling in this moment. Like imagine working 60, 80 hours a week and making ends meet. Who doesn't want to drink after that? Who doesn't like the choices that we're uh, uh, having people make are nearly impossible. Um, and so for me, has been it has been a real, um, I've been really committed to this idea that we need to shift the focus away from the individual actor and their choices and towards the systems and the people in these systems that actually have money and power to change our lives. Um, Those are the people that should wake up burdened. Those are the people who should wake up uh, with a level of anxiety and stress about how we are all going to be okay. Uh, Not uh, the low wage worker, not, you know, like not people without power and resources. So that's one thing is like thinking about who has the power to make the decisions. But then honestly, for me, Abdul, it's really about shifting power. Like how do we put resources out in the world so that those communities who have not been represented in our democracy and our economy actually are so that they have the power to actually shift how we move and that they are the forefront, that they are the the ways that our program, the reasons uh, our programs are organized. They are the, they are informing the structure of our social services as opposed to a top down or uh, a top down approach to care and to policymaking, which is what we've experienced. And I think we are at the precipice. We are seeing the huge, the fact that we have had only one COVID um, relief bill over the last six months, twelve hundred dollars, is um, it's a crime. They're killing us. Yeah, I, I think the the point that you're making about the structural circumstances within which people are forced to make decisions. Um, is one that often folks don't see simply because privilege is the ability to choose. And, you know, if I don't, you know, exercise someday, it's it's not because um, I have to work my third job uh, or because my neighborhood is uh, not a safe place to go walk. It's because I chose not to because I have privilege that allows me to decide what I do with my times and, and, and the means uh, of being healthy are entirely in my control. If I choose to eat uh, unhealthy food, it's not because I didn't have the money to buy healthy food or because there wasn't a grocery store in my neighborhood. It was because I made a decision uh, not to eat healthy food. And so people impute their own decision set onto other people, assuming that everybody else ha- has the same exact decision tree that they do without appreciating that it's actually privilege that allows you the number of choices that you have. And um, one of the aspects of this that I think is really important is that 
it pulls us out of um, the sort of binary of healthcare. And, you know, when I was in medical school, um, one of the things a really smart professor of mine told me that I always tell my students uh, when I teach is that, you know, people spend maybe 1% of their life in the clinic or the hospital. They spend the rest of their, their time outside of the clinic or hospital. And the difference of whether or not they're healthy or sick does have to do with whether or not they can get to the hospital or the clinic, but also has to do with the air they breathe, the streets that they walk, the job that they work, uh, et cetera. And, you know, as you think about this moment in COVID-19, um, the work that you're, uh, you're doing around, around health disparities, how much of um, the disparities of COVID-19 are attributable to, you know, whether or not somebody could get health care and how much are attributable to the circumstances in which people are living in the midst of a global pandemic? 90, 10. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I think one of the things um, I am an optimist at my core. So uh, I, I believe we're going to win. Uh, I believe in our liberation. Uh, I believe that uh, if not in my lifetime, that uh, I am ready to give uh, myself to future generations being deeply represented in our economy and our democracy. Um but today, the moment of today is a 90-10 day. And the gift of today is that nobody can look away. Uh, there's no, uh, if we have people in our, people in political and uh, economic leadership in this moment trying to work around the edges, there is so much evidence that forever, uh, forever from our founding, we have made visible all of the ways that the fissures in our democracy, and there's no looking away from that right now, Abdul. So, like, I am clear that like 90% of it uh, was happening to our communities. 90% of it was happening in January, where it was like 70% of working people in this country couldn't afford a thousand dollar unexpected expense. It was happening when like the most ambitious thing that we could fight for in this country was a $15 minimum wage and not a full um, reassessment of our tax system. Uh, it, it was happening in moments uh, when Obamacare was the best, most ambition thing, ambitious thing, and it wasn't Medicare for all, right? It has been happening. It's just that it's been happening uh, in ways that I think people with privilege, to your point, could look away from. Uh, and could, there was too much around people with privilege, including myself, right? That um, there was always an opportunity to either narrate your success as solely, um, as a personal endeavor, as something that's reflected of your personal drive or well-being, uh, or uh, the ability for you to navigate these really complex systems. And today that just isn't true, right? Like I, I think today the ability to see something um, not only I think frees people from the burden of trying to make sense of the absurdity of their circumstance, right? Like Imagine working 60, 80 hours a week and still being poor. And you're like trying to make sense of that, right? Like um, that frees people of that, but it actually places the burden on people like you and I, Abdul, to actually call it out and fight to fix the system in solidarity with our brothers and sisters in this moment. Yeah. And as you think about, you know, if we were serious about using this moment as an inflection point, 
what would we be doing to take on disparities as they exist in our society with respect to health, but all of the things that create poor health in the first place? Oh, I, you know, like I'm a big, uh, I love taxes. I feel like we need uh, like a, a real, we need to have a true conversation about taxation in this country. And somehow we have made taxation seem like uh, brain science. I just uh, lean into my, your doctor leanness, but we have made it like this nebulous thing uh, that's impossible to pass. Uh, And I think we need to actually look at our system of taxation first and foremost. With that, I think we need to reimagine a social safety net, right? Like I believe in us, right? Like I believe in absolutely all of us. And that social safety net needs to be able to catch every last one of us uh, in the ways that we may have anticipated and may not have anticipated, right? In countries where there was a robust social safety net, um, kids are back at school now. Uh, In countries where there's a robust social safety net, people aren't dying uh, right now. Us months into a pandemic. Uh, and so I think the second thing for me is reimagining our social safety net. And then third is really a transformation of our democracy and our economy. Too often we've invited folks who have been at the margins of our democracy and our economy to participate, right? So like voting is the only way or purchasing is the only way without actually shifting who gets to make the rules in our democracy and our economy so that when we lose in our democracy, we place it on the, again, at the feet of uh, people with the least amount of power to sit in the rain for 24 hours to vote. No, that's not like a functioning system. (laughs) That's a broken system. System, why would we put that at, at their feet instead of actually contesting um, both for ideas and resources that actually shift who gets to inform how our democracy and economy work? Mm. And one of the one of the most important, I think, um, advents in the context of this pandemic has been a renewed uprising for for racial justice. And we saw that in in the wake of the, the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor at the hands of law enforcement, uh, the, um, I'd say, attempted murder of, of Jacob Blake uh, in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Um, and a lot of the focus of these movements has been rightly on the criminal legal system. But, you know, as we think more comprehensively about the consequences of COVID-19, one of the arguments I've made is that you have these people who are sworn to protect, quote unquote, the public safety, who don't just, you know, fail to include uh, black folks in the public that they're supposed to protect. They actually think of them as part of what they're supposed to protect the public from. But it's not just the public and public safety that we've excluded black folks from. It's also the public and public health. And we see this in COVID-19 in a world where, um, you know, we're seeing two and a half fold uh, the the death rate among black and brown Americans. Um, as we think about where Black Lives Matter goes from here, what is the more expanded basket of demands that we need to be making uh, for true uh, racial justice in this country? Yeah, what I found so exciting about this moment is the conversation about divest, invest, right? Which is not anything new if you have been 
uh, in progressive or left or like uh, more expansive uh, spaces in this country. I love this idea that it's not only defunding the police, but reinvesting in the things that tether us together, reinvesting in our social and economic infrastructure, reinvesting in opportunity and imagination, reinvesting in the things that actually allow us to live lives of dignity, every last one of us. And so for me, the the connection, the tethering of COVID-19 with the economic crisis, with with the fires that we are living in now, with the racial justice, with the fight for Black lives in this moment, the thing that tethers it is an opportunity to divest from the infrastructure, ideas, a power of white supremacy and reinvest into a, a deeply more democratic, a deeply more inclusive and caring, um, a more generative society for all of us. Uh, I think that um, the the divest invest framing is so powerful and helpful because it's not only about giving taking away; it's about putting in, right? It's not like you're taking the, you're not like pulling something up from the root. We are actively planting seeds for the future we want. And that for me feels so, so animating and exciting. Well, Carmen, um, we really appreciate your insights uh, on health disparities and in the bigger picture of the movement uh, to take them on and take on disparities and injustice uh, in our society in in every way. I want to ask you, how are you spending these very odd um, and challenging days right now? (laughs) Well, that's a great question. Um, (laughs) I am, you know, I'm reading a lot of young adult fiction. I I really love reading, but when I was growing up, there wasn't a ton of, I didn't have access to a ton of young adult fiction um, uh, that that felt like me. So like Mm. I read a lot of young adult fiction, white fiction, right? Like, Uh, And so I've been reading a lot of young adult fiction. I just finished this amazing book called Clap When You Land by Elizabeth Acevedo. And it's been an amazing reminder of um, like how you feel when you're a young person, the things, the romance and like how the world is so open to you, the hopefulness. Um, I think it's also made me a lot more generous and kind to young people in this moment and like the, the pain of being, locked in. Um, so that's what I've been doing a lot of. <laughs> that's a, that's a beautiful reminder. I think, um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time with young folks, both as an educator, but also, um, you know, just, uh, tr- trying to stay connected, um, with folks. And it's a reminder that life is never more vivid, uh, than when you're young mm-hmm. and, um, totally the purity of emotion. Uh, and you know, it, there is, it's interesting, right? Because you talk to a lot of older folks and they'll be like, how can they think this way? And my point is that, well, actually, by definition, you thought that way at some point, right? And even then- That's exactly right. We spend so much time trying to get that back, right? You, you, <laughs> right? That, that ability just to, 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 to experience an undaunted, true emotion again, right, is what mm. all of our entertainment is about, right? Um, and young people just have that. It's just a function of who they are. And so Absolutely you know, I, right. I've got a two and a half year old and I, you know, look at how she experiences the world and the unbridled joy at little things, right? Like, you know, oh. we saw a purple flower that was really beautiful yesterday and she was just 
so in awe of this beautiful purple flower. And I, I just wish for a moment I could have that back, right? Without, mm. without having to explain to myself that, well, there's a purple flower that, you know, is growing in some meadow. You know, it's, it's actually probably a weed. If I saw it in my own yard, you know, I'd probably <laughs> cut it, right? But just, it's a beautiful purple flower that mm-hmm. is in this moment with you. And that joy, I think, is really important to reconnect to because that's what life is made of. So um, thanks for that reminder. I, I really appreciate that. And um, thank you for taking the time to join us today. Thank you, Abdullah. It's really wonderful to spend this time with you. Last week, Carmen Rojas' organization, the Margaret Casey Foundation, announced its 2020 class of Freedom Scholars, leaders and thinkers who stand at the forefront of new movements for economic and social justice. You can read more about them at caseygrants.org slash freedom scholars. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. The CDC quietly updated its guidelines about COVID-19 transmission, stating the virus could be spread by aerosols that waft through the air. And then yesterday, the CDC withdrew those exact guidelines. Their official stance? These guidelines were posted prematurely. First, the CDC was, before this pandemic, one of the world's most trusted public health organizations. To continue to watch these kinds of amateur hour antics mar its reputation and its work is devastating. All of it because the Trump administration has taken a no-holds-barred approach to interfering with the science and manipulating talking points to make the president look good. And then there's the recommendation itself. It's pretty clear now that the coronavirus is airborne, spread by aerosols that can waft in stagnant air for some time. What does it mean for you and me? We should probably avoid crowded indoor places. In fact, a recent study found that people who got COVID were two times more likely to have eaten at an indoor restaurant just before it than people who did not. And all of this reminds us, COVID is not over. Wear your mask. Avoid crowded places, particularly indoors. And get your flu shot. Oh, and make sure you're registered to vote and you've got a clear voting plan. Today is National Voter Registration Day. If you've been listening to the show, you're probably already registered to vote. But guess what? Now's a great time to double check that you're still registered at votesaveamerica.com verify. It's especially important if you've moved since the last election, change your name, or if you haven't voted in a while. Once you've checked yourself, make sure your friends and family have verified their registration as well. Then go to votesaveamerica.com slash everylastvote for volunteer opportunities to get new voters registered and to donate to organizations helping get registration info to people in key places ahead of their deadlines. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra, Lyra Smith, and Allison Falzetta. The theme song is by Takeya Suzawa and Alex Uguiera. Our executive producer is Sarah Geismer. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Thanks for listening.